and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life now. Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Tom Rath is an author and researcher who has spent the past two decades studying how work can improve human health and well-being, and he's going to talk about how he got started on his journey of health and well-being at a very young age, so that definitely gets addressed in our conversation today. Tom has 10 books which have sold more than 10 million copies. That's right, 10 books and more than 10 million copies and made hundreds of appearances on global best-selling lists. What you're going to find out from this conversation is even though Tom's resume is loaded and, and quite remarkable, he really thinks about contribution quite a bit. And his first book, How Full Is Your Bucket, speaks to the idea of what meaning and purpose mean to us. And that book was an instant number one New York Times bestseller and led to a series of books that are used in classrooms around the world, which Tom will reference in our conversation today. 
His book, Strength Finder 2.0, is how I certainly found out about him. If you've ever taken the Strength Finder assessment, it is actually given away if you buy a copy of the Strength Finder book, and it's Amazon's top-selling nonfiction book of all time. Tom's other bestsellers include Strengths-Based Leadership, Well-Being, Eat, Move, and Sleep, which we talk about in today's conversation, and Are You Fully Charged? He's also co-authored two illustrated books for children, How Full Is Your Bucket for Kids, and The Rechargeables. His most recent books are Life's Great Question, Discover How You Can Best Contribute to the World, and It's Not About You, A Brief Guide to a Meaningful Life, published in partnership with Amazon Original Series. Tom also spent 13 years at Gallup, which we don't even really cover in today's conversation, where he led the organization's strengths, employee engagement, well-being, and leadership consulting worldwide. He has served for the past five years as an external advisor and Gallup senior scientist. And at his core, he really is a researcher. He's somebody who loves to get in the weeds and find out what the science says about well-being and how we can be our best selves. He's also served as vice chair of the VHL Cancer Research Organization and has been a regular lecturer at the University of Pennsylvania. Most recently, and we get into this in today's conversation, Tom co-founded a publishing company, and he's also an advisor, investor, and partner in several startups. This conversation is wide-ranging. As I said, it is not just about Tom's accomplishments. It is also about how he sees the world, what it's like for him to be a father and a husband, and just a great overall citizen. I love this conversation, and I know you will too. So here is Tom Rath. Tom, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, excited to have a fellow Washingtonian. We can call you a Washingtonian. It, you've been here long enough uh, on I the haven't. podcast. <laughs> I haven't lived in the city for a while. Um, but where I thought we'd start is when I asked you about, hey, where, where should we start today? You talked about contribution and you talked about work and, and well-being in the workforce. But then you said something else that really captured my attention, which is that you were sort of forced into this 20 years ago. Can you talk a little bit about how you even got into writing and researching and the work that you're doing today? Yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting starting point because it was it was a wild accident, to be honest. Um, I I had never I was a numbers guy. I was set on I wanted to kind of do things with statistics and research. And to this day, I'm still I am most comfortable when I'm kind of alone thinking to myself or reading about new research each morning, which I still just do um, meticulously. And I'm not nowhere near as comfortable in a small social circle or a big social circle, or especially not speaking in front of large crowds, which I kind of got thrown into as well. Um, so when I was uh, 16 years old, I was diagnosed with a real rare genetic condition that caused me to lose sight in my left eye at that age. And um, doctors told me that I... Uh, because of that condition, I would likely battle cancer in my kidneys and spine and pancreas and all these spots over whatever a lifetime might look like at that point. So, I mean, one kind of interesting thing there got me focused at a pretty young age, which most people don't, on what really matters and what contributions I could make. And we, we can come back to that. Um, but then when I was graduating from college, uh, probably 22 years old, I uh, knew the work world. I went to work with my grandfather, Don Clifton, who was, uh, he'd, he'd spent all of his life kind of helping people discover their strengths. And that was his big topic of focus. And he was involved in the early days of the 
positive psychology movement as well. And he asked me if I could help him put together a web-based assessment to pull together a lot of these telephonic interviews he'd done over the years. And so what we were working on was the early versions of what became StrengthsFinder that's kind of a widely used tool in businesses today. Um, but in the middle of that, uh, Don, who I'd been, he'd kind of been my mentor and father figure, we were incredibly close. He was diagnosed with gastroesophageal cancer and it was stage four. And I knew what that meant. And he knew what that meant because we both read too much research. Um, and so as we were traveling around the country together, Don said to me, uh, or he'd always said it when I was growing up that he thought it was a huge waste that we wait to eulogize people until after they're gone. And boy, did that stick in my head. And I'd always kind of wondered about that. And so when he was sick and it was clear that he probably had no more than a year to live, I, I said to myself, I better really make sure he knows what he's meant to me. And so I spent several nights up late. We were down in Houston working on his treatment at a cancer center there. And I wrote this long letter about everything that he'd meant to my life and keeping me positive through those early challenges I mentioned. And when I handed it to him, and it were, I remember it was like 100 degrees in Houston, we were at a residence in, um, miserable outside. I handed this letter, and he was totally moved and um, kind of overcome with emotion by it, as I might have expected. But then what surprised me was two days later, he said, you know, I've been reading and rereading this letter, and I noticed a real talent for writing and bringing things to life with words. And... I was kind of shell-shocked by that because I the other day I'm moving houses here in DC and I found actually found the notebook from my AP English teacher in high school who said I should stick with numbers hmm. and that my writing looked more like a journal than a diary, which I still don't understand. Wait, when you when you read that today, how do how do you even think about that? When you when you see that letter, how do you even think about that? Um, you know, it's it, it's I I mean, one thing is like I, you know, every time I've mentioned this to someone it's such a good reminder of taking periodic moments to step back and remind people of the what they've meant to you and how much you love them and the value in their life. And to, I mean, especially if you're able to put that into writing, it's such a big thing. So, mm -hmm. it's, so he he said, but you know, and I had worked, I'd already been working with Don on Strengths Finder, and I'd taken the Strengths Finder test like ten times while we were testing and stuff, and no one on this planet had ever said Tom might be good at writing. Right. Um, and especially after being scarred by the AP English teacher, I knew that I I, I wouldn't even write, share an article for publication ever. I was never planning to do that. But Don said, why don't we try and work on a book in the next two months? So he gave me a real specific challenge. In the next two months, could we write a book about this dipper and bucket story he's told since he since he was uh, younger in his early career? Anyhow, so over the next few months, we worked pretty hard on it and we were able to finish a draft of that book just months before he passed away. And it's kind of a fun story because um, that book originally caught on the business world and then it really moved into the education space. And now um, eventually a few years in, we had to, we made a children's book around it, but now I think it's used in probably half the classrooms in America as a classroom management strategy. Cause it's kind of that basic philosophy that, Boy, it's still important in kindergarten and in middle management and in leadership where every time you interact with someone, you fill your bucket or you fill their bucket or you dip from it. And things don't usually come out in between, but yet it's so easy to lose track of that 
when we're racing through a day and just responding to all kinds of stuff and all that. So, I mean, it's, I like, it's, it's cool for me. And it was a good lesson from a book standpoint. I mean, talk about as, as an author, I'm sure you understand this, that that metaphor in that book are about as timeless as you're ever going to get. Right. And so 20, it's been 20 years and it's still applicable for my kids when they show up at a school and they're doing it. So that, that was all a fun learning for me. Tom, what were Don's strengths? And I don't mean like strength finder strengths. I mean, like as a, as a human being, and they could be strength finder strengths, but like when you think of him, like what are the values that he had? What did he pass down to you as a mentor? You know, it's interesting. Cause I see, like, I see, um, he, he was just insatiably curious, which like, I mean, any, when I either learn something new in a day or when something I believed in, especially strongly is proven wrong, nothing makes me happier than to be that wrong because it means I've learned something new and I'm being open-minded. Right. And I, that's, that's one thing I really learned from him is that um, it's just learning is a great way to kind of fill your own bucket and get new knowledge. And then I think the thing that he did really, really well that I wish I was better at and continue to strive to as a parent, and I really see it in his daughter, my mom, um, is that he was one of the best people, and she is as well, at just kind of asking really good questions and then knowing to be incredibly silent and pause and wait like so many parents skip doing, right, in the hurry of a day, and then to genuinely listen to those answers. And um, nowadays, I spend a lot of time with executives and leadership teams, and I tell them, I, I think in this day and age where we've got notifications and things buzzing and dinging all around, and it's so easy to just go for the shiny object, I I don't think anything's going to be more important from a leadership standpoint than to really think about a good question that you could ask someone who looks to you for guidance and then keep all your damn devices stowed away and genuinely kind of close your mouth for a while and listen and listen and listen and process that and to continue to do that. So um yeah, outside of the kind of the formal strength stuff, those were two of the things that I'm not sure um, anyone helped me to have more rapid growth and development because of the way he did that. You mentioned curiosity. I'm obsessed with curiosity. I think about how can I help my kids become more curious? Uh, I think people are born with curiosity. I actually think we all have it. Anyone who's been around kids knows that kids are insanely curious you are mentioned strength strength finder and the idea of strengths being embedded into our school systems. I've seen it even when I went out to George Mason. I think they give every new student the the book and the assessment, which was pretty unbelievable to to see and to learn. If you think about curiosity, how can we increase the curiosity of our young people? And how can we maybe embed more curiosity into our school systems? Oh, that's a that's a really fun question because I, I feel like it's so easy as a parent or a teacher or a, a administrator at school to accidentally stomp that out. Um, we stomp that, I mean, at a super simple level, sometimes I stomp that out when I don't give my son time to respond. Um, so it's, it's, I mean, the way we all process, especially at a really young age, I think, um, just asking a question and making sure you don't follow up or push or prod too much for at least 30 to 60 seconds if you need to. Um, I mean, that's kind of a micro thing to do, but boy, does that really matter. Um, and then, I mean, the other thing I've uh, 
learned more about and been more open-minded to uh, as I get older is I, I think for kids in particular, and then even as we get older as adults, to have more time to just have free time and play time, I think, because it's in the free time and the play time where we kind of act like our true selves a little bit more, but yet we get so caught up in things that make someone more likely to have the knowledge they need on a standardized test in the school system, for example, right? And then, you know, the other thing, I'm a, a, a just complete zealot about, um, and my kids would tell you that, and sometimes it drives them nuts, is the value of sleep for creativity and performance and uh, well-being overall. I, I think sleep is the most underestimated need at, especially in schools that start way too early on average. Um, my daughter starts here in, in Arlington, Virginia. Like She has to be at the house by seven o'clock in the morning, which as a middle schooler, I, I think is just wild and runs counter to every ounce of academic literature I've ever studied. Um, and so we have these schedules and norms and, and then practices go to nine, 10 o'clock at night or whatever, right? So uh, I think we need to give kids windows to sleep that are much wider so they have that. I mean, really, if you get one good night's sleep for all of us, it's like a reset button on your video game, or your smartphone. You get a whole new start on the next day in terms of energy and creativity and the relate the interactions you have with other people and you're more likely to eat better. I mean, it just starts these upward spirals that just keep going and going and going. It's cool because when I hear creativity, I think curiosity is a big spark to creativity. And to your point, well, what allows people to be curious, they probably need to be well rested. And you wrote a book, Eat, Move, Sleep, and and you mentioned studying health uh quite a bit from the time you're 16 years old. But I want to just go back to that time in your life. I just when I was a senior in high school, all my friends had cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone. My parents, I was the last one to get a cell phone, which was kind of a joke in in our circle. But they did get me a video camera. And uh, I, I just found videos from 20 years ago. I'm 38. So uh, from when I was 18. And I'm watching 18-year-old Brian. I'm not going to share those with the world. Let's just say that I'm not impressed by 18 year old Brian. And I'm thinking about you at 16 and you said, you know, I got diagnosed with a disease. I lost one eye. And I started thinking about how I could contribute to others. And as I'm watching these videos of me at 18, I'm like, man, that hopefully I've grown and changed a lot since then. But it sounds like for you at 16, you already started thinking about your contribution to earth or, or to our society, what about you at 16 was able to take something that a lot of people would probably become scared of, fearful of, terrified of, uh, and actually move in a direction of maybe resilience and and actually use it as a motivator to go learn and, and go make an impact? Yeah, you know, it's a fun question that I've never talked to anyone about, I don't think. But um, I one thing my mom was really, really good at when all that happened was uh, she kind of buffered for me and kept uh, a reserve for me from an energy standpoint, I think, that allowed me to continue on living, I would say, 95 to 98 percent of the exact normal childhood that would have otherwise happened, even if I never had that diagnosis. So I had a blast running around with my friends throughout high school and got to college and had even more fun and 
Um, I couldn't have had better social life and experience. Um, and it, it wasn't, I did, the, the diagnosis didn't turn me into some do-gooder who was just running around thinking about how do I contribute and do something good for society in the next few years of that age, to be honest. What I did do back then, um, I, I got pretty focused in my free time on, I don't know if it was five, 10% of my time of making sure every day I read a little bit of medical research and learn a little bit more about how I can manage and get ahead of my condition, because that gave me confidence and more of a sense of control around it. Um, so, so I did do that more. Um, and then I think as I finished my undergraduate degree and started thinking about my career, that's where it started to be more relevant and helpful because I was asking a question of, I mean, I, I think back then some people would have predicted the over under on a lifespan when I was born would be about 37 with this condition. So I'm like, I got to pack a lot of good and do a lot of stuff into a short period of time here. And then I've also would like to raise a family and find someone to marry. And I want to figure out how to be present in that role more than anything else with kids and stuff. Right. So I kind of had all that in my head. So that's when it did start to compress a lot and probably led to some resiliency where I was focused on things in my work on a daily basis. And I, I even to this day, I ask myself each day, of the things that are on my schedule and calendar, uh, how much of it is actually contributing to a project or an effort or a relationship or a business project that could continue to pay yields and dividends for people even when I'm gone? And so I, I did get, I did ask that a lot and I continue to. And I recommend everybody should because it's it's a pretty powerful motivator. And it also is just a good functional prioritization tool because if I show up at work tomorrow morning on my computer over here and I finally get to inbox zero, I'll get a little rush of dopamine and I'll feel really good about it. But it won't make a darn bit of difference two days from now, let alone two years from now or 20 years from now, right? So I think there's something in the mindset there too. And then, you know, as I worked on my most a recent book, Life's Great Question, that's all about how people find the best way to contribute, essentially. Um, in that book, I, what I learned as I was going back in the literature is it's pretty clear that people who do face major life challenges and threats to their mortality at a young age, on average, they come out with what psychologists, and I'm sure you're familiar with this, are now calling post-traumatic growth in a lot of cases. And so I think that's clearly what happened with me. Um, and I'm, you know, the minute this darn pandemic hit, the first thing I did was I've got a retreat center that I run uh, out in the Blue Ridge Mountains here. And I started dialing in from out there with a lot of executives and CEOs who I talked to. And what I noticed was um, the pandemic caused almost everyone, at least most people I talked to, to ask some of those same questions and to say, wait, why am I doing this? how am I doing this in a way that's good for me or good for society and stuff? And to really kind of rethink their relationship with what they do in life and how it contributes to society. And so like after 25, 30 years of battle and all this stuff, it was just fascinating to watch people kind of walk into that world sequentially um, as a pandemic hit. Cause I, I think it's, I think it's good for people sometimes. How do you think about legacy? You know, it's a good question. I, I personally, when you ask that, would jump to 
what are the things that I've made a major investment in or contributed to that will continue to be important and meaningful and grow uh, mostly for my family, for kids, but also for people who have read books or people who I've spent time with in a teaching context. Um, so that for me, that's legacy. I don't, um, I I really haven't spent much time in the last 10 years, at least, uh, thinking about accomplishment and more the resume building stuff. I think, you know, the, the more I uh, see the world through the lens of my children or future generations. I, I think it was David uh, Brooks who wrote about a year ago or two years ago about kind of the eulogy values versus the resume values. And so I, I, I see everything through the eulogy values of um, what I'm doing that's meaningful for people versus some of the accomplishment stuff that might have been more relevant to me. 10 or 20 years ago, or I might, yeah. I might have thought about more. Yeah, David's book is The Road to Character, and um, I highly recommend that book. It's a great book, and it, it comes up all the time. I've, I've probably mentioned it on this podcast before. It just comes up all the time because that eulogy resume concept is so simplistic and, yeah. and easy for people to understand. I want to just go back to what happened with your eye. So I'm deaf in my left ear. Um, I was... They think I was born that way. It's kind of interesting. Um, you know, I wasn't born and they said, oh, he's deaf in one ear. But as I started to evolve and would talk and they put the, my parents put the phone up to my ear and they sort of figured it out. And then they brought me a doctor like, oh, yeah, he can't hear anything in his left ear. And as a result of that, I think there are gifts and challenges that, that came with it. Uh, a gift is, I think, I have a, a strong ability to connect with people and to notice things that maybe other people miss. Um, and I think I'm perceptive and use my eyes. Um, but sometimes my eyes lie and I can move too quick and assume things. And I've learned that even though I have one ear, I need to use that one ear uh, a lot and and really listen deeply. So I've worked really, really hard the last 15 years to improve my listening. For you, does your eyesight impact you in any way uh, for how you see the world? And has it impacted you in how you interact day to day with the world? You know, I, I, I need to pause. I, I chuckled the minute you said that for, for a moment, because a, a couple of years ago, my wife uh, took me to a wedding in Maryland here and introduced me to a bunch of her friends that I hadn't met yet. And they were all, we were sitting, sitting around one of those big round tables and all she realized and a few of her friends realized that I was sitting next to someone who was on my left side, which is always my nightmare because they think I'm not paying attention. I just can't see. But they put me next to someone who couldn't hear in their right ear. And so it was like it was just kind of the ongoing running joke at the wedding that night. Um, but it's I I think, it, you know, it's a good reminder for me that I so I try and manage around that like you do. I mean, I've I'm always strategic about now. Nowadays, my wife sits on my left. That ended that, um, and so she helps to buffer when we're in group settings. And I'm always extra cautious when I'm driving and in social circles and all that. But you know, one of the things, and and I, I think one thing when you say that, it reminded me of is most of us are dealing with some real challenge like that, and the people most people we interact with never know that. And so I, I always have to remind myself to presume that someone else is dealing with the same stuff, right? And remind myself of that. And it's it's also, I write, I think I wrote about this in one book a while ago, but it's fascinating to me how, you know, when I'm in a Starbucks back pre-pandemic and just packed, uh, 
and I'm moving around in there, I will inevitably bump into someone on my left because I just can't help it. And it's what I've learned after uh, 30 years of dealing with this is that that's just an interesting psychological lens for me in a given day on what's going on with a stranger. Because sometimes, I mean, most of the time they'll bump into me and they will apologize and diffuse and it just kind of turns into a fine, positive interaction. But sometimes people are really upset and offended and they really react. And I mean, over the years, I've realized the worst thing I can ever do is fight back or over explain back. I'm always kind of quickly apologizing and so forth. But I've kind of learned to use it as a little gift to slow down and pay attention to what's going on in other people's lives that I don't know at all. Right. Um, so it's, so I, I think we all learn management tricks around some of that stuff. But I I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's it's a good reminder when you talk about this that as I'm kind of moving and rushing through a day, I think, especially after this pandemic, I was with a group of executives at the retreat spot last week, and um, almost everyone in a group of 15 execs, almost all of the 15 leaders uh, openly admitted and talked and we went around a circle about real serious personal and mental health, all kinds of challenges they've struggled with in the last two or three years. And so I think we've almost got to presume that for everyone now, which sounds odd for me to say, and make sure that everyone's being looked after and heard in the circles that we spend time in. Now. I'm stealing that. I have not connected my deaf in my left ear with a ability to have more compassion and grace for people that just, I, I don't know why I've never thought about that. Um, and to your point, most people listen to this podcast. I don't think I've ever, yeah, ever even talked about being deaf in my left ear. And this is like 300 episodes. So most people listening to this they probably have no idea. And then I have friends who have known me for a long time and, and are like, wait, what? They didn't even, they didn't even know. Um, but I do try to over communicate it. So if I'm at a dinner, same as you, like if I'm sitting with someone on my left, I'm deaf in my left ear there. I'm not going to be able to talk to them unless I crush my neck and turn my back to whoever's next to me. And so I always position myself and like you, my wife is great. She knows. So she goes and sits on my left side. So someone else can have my right side, but I try to always over communicate so that they know Hey, like it's not personal, but there are lots of other times when I'm in a stadium or a, a loud restaurant or a bar or wherever I am, where I can't communicate that. And someone's trying to get my attention and they think I'm just being rude and ignoring them when I actually just can't hear them. But that thought of everyone's going through something and no one would know, I don't have a sign on my head that says I'm deaf in my left ear and they don't have a sign on their head says that they're going through depression or that they have severe anxiety or that their wife is cheating on them or whatever it is that they might be going through. And if we all could assume positive intent, how better would my, I just forget anyone else. How better would I be if I took that approach? That's, that's fascinating to me. Um, you were going to say something. Yeah. Just, just, I want to continue on pulling that thread a little bit more. Um, as as we're talking now, I know people can't see us, but um, I, I've had to set up a, a Zoom setup where I can sit and stand regular because of all the spinal issues I have. And even in the days prior to Zoom, I would always open up a meeting by kind of disclaiming that, but also saying that, I mean, it, it helps me feel a lot more comfortable if you get up and move around and stand too. There's kind of a this implicit um, expectation in a meeting normally that 
it's rude unless like the CEO or the leader in the room gets up and stands. No one else gives a permission to. But yet there's extensive research. You've probably seen some of this. That I mean, after 16, 17 minutes ball on average, it's pretty clear that even if I'm really interested in the topic and all that, there's no chance I'm paying attention if I don't toggle between sitting, standing, get up, move around. So um, I think both in in-person meeting environments and on Zoom calls, even though it's not perfect from a camera setup or a visual uh, or a visual perspective when tables are too low in meeting rooms, we've got to just open things up by saying, hey, I've got real severe spinal issues. I'm going to be up and down, or it's just better for all of us for attention and start to bring some of these things out in the open. I was with a, a government consulting group here in DC right before the pandemic, and I was blown away by how many senior executives talked openly at a big company event about some of their own mental, physical health challenges. And I just don't think you can do enough of that right now because we're all dealing with stuff. And the more you bring it out in the open, it brings a, a bond and an understanding and the right actions, I think. There's also something that I'm now connecting. I had Derek Thompson on the podcast. He's also a local uh, great guy, really sharp. And in his book, Hitmakers, he talks about how humans are drawn to something familiar and also want to feel something new. And he even talks about attraction, like who are we attracted to? And we're actually just attracted to normal looking people. Like if they are very normal or average, like height and average uh, weight and their ears and they're like, we are attracted to normal uh, and we're sort of wired that way. And you've got me wondering if I apply that to what you're talking about is it's not normal for someone to stand up in the middle of a meeting, but how do we normalize things so that people can be at their best? And how can we create containers and environments where, for example, eating, like I've been around nutritionists who say, you should absolutely have some nuts on the table for a conference meeting. And why wouldn't you want people to get energy while they're meeting? But we say, no, food's distracting for, for the meeting. And so we've got all these rules and norms that we set for humans that make us feel like everyone's normal, but might go against what's needed as far as creativity and health and curiosity. Any thoughts on that? I'm just putting that together. Yeah. I mean, God, the, the way that we've built the expectation of what work is and what should be just needs blown up on average. I mean, to be really honest, it's kind of the, I mean, and I, and I think that's, that'll be the best thing that comes out of the, uh, effect of COVID is that we will all kind of end up in better ways to work, whether that's less time sitting in a car commuting, whether that's getting outdoors and walking more while you're on calls or whatever. Um, I think we're all finding a better way to work and that overall balance there. And some of those social norms, whether it's about um, the food that's brought in to work events, whether it's about, um, I, I was with a group of execs at a real hard charging company last week. And um, I mean, their their baby step is uh, the, this was a CFO I was working with saying to his team uh, for Monday in the subject line. So people don't think they have to respond over the weekends or really late at night and so forth. So that kind of round the clock thing that's going on. But I think we've got a question about as many assumptions as we can about how we can make work a better experience. Because prior to the pandemic, my uh, favorite book I was telling everybody to read is a friend of mine, Jeff Pfeffer at Stanford, who wrote a book called Dying for a Paycheck. And 
Um, I, I said to Jeff before I wrote him, like, that might not sell a lot of copies with managers and leaders handing down, but uh, it's an incredible book that summarizes a lot of what Jeff studied and a lot of what I've seen in the data in my years at Gallup looking at well-being. That, um, on, I mean, this is terrible. On average, work is harming people. At least it was prior to the pandemic. Um, it's not a good, it's not, it's a net gain for the company. I don't think it's a net gain for the person. And that, I think that can be a lot better. That's what pushed me into spending the last 10 years looking at overall well-being and work is because I think we right now, we and we don't, I mean, most of it's our fault because we don't expect work to make us better parents, to make us healthier, to make us more involved in our community. But yet when we go to work, these companies have a science down about measuring how much discretionary effort they're getting from us every day when we show up. So they know they're getting all this engagement and effort and productivity and safety and you name it. But yet we're not saying, hey, wait, am I a better dad because I work at this company? Am I more involved in contributing to my community because I work here? But yet I really think we should. So I think it's it's a good, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because that, rethink probably starts with us as people because I've spent the last decade trying to get leaders to do it at a company level. And I'm increasingly skeptical about that, to be honest. I want to talk about the charging lab because people can check it out, charginglab.com. Uh, so this it's this retreat space. Uh, I think you said it's on a hundred acres and you've got this big warehouse space there. One of the thesis that I have about what's coming out of the pandemic as people are trying to figure out in-person, hybrid, remote, all this, all these elements is to me, there is now an awareness that a lot of really great work can be done over Zoom. I used to do all these podcasts in person as much as possible. You're in Arlington, Virginia. I'm in Bethesda, Maryland. I would have been like, hey, Tom, I'm going to come meet you and we're going to record or you can come to my office in Bethesda. Now I'm like, nope, they're all over Zoom. And and I think it's actually way better um, that way. Uh, but I think companies are trying to figure out, all right, where do we use the technology for and the remote for? What do we use in person for? And my thesis is that there is great, great value in doing offsites when you're trying to do creative work, problem solving, strategizing, retreats to connect with each other, to connect you know, outside of the walls. And then there's going to be a lot of value in remote work where you don't need to necessarily collaborate on on different projects. And so for me, everyone's thinking of hybrid as just remote and in person, but I think the big, big opportunity is actually potentially you shrink the office space and you take some of that money and you invest it into offsites where people can connect. And the example I give is my brothers. My brothers both live in the New York area. And so I don't get to see them all the time, but when they come to visit or when I come to visit, we sleep over, we have breakfast together, we have dinner together, we have wine at night. And I find our, our conversations to be really meaningful. And as much as I want them to live across the street from me and I want their kids to grow up with my kids, I think if they did, maybe we would take it for granted and and maybe would be kind of more disconnected, even though they're across the street. Do you have any thoughts as you build this uh, experience, this retreat space, the charging lab, and you're thinking about that as it relates to how you're advising clients to think about remote versus in-person versus offsites and all that good stuff? Yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of a good tie-in. I did the the charging lab that we built out uh, that center in the warehouse. It got its name from the book "Are You Fully Charged?" Uh, that I published a few years ago. And 
basically my takeaway from that research, which was all about what makes a really great day. So if you just say, what are the essential ingredients that all have to be present to have a really good day? Uh, those ingredients were you got to do something meaningful. You don't have to spend your whole darn day doing meaningful work that's all highfalutin achieving purpose stuff. You just need to have a little meaning in your day where you see how you're contributing to a patient's life, to a student's life, whatever it is. Um, so meaning. And the second one was all about uh, interactions. And you do need those in-person, I would say, interactions every with people you work with. It could be every week, every month, every quarter, every year. But there's a reason why the, even the best uh, executive graduate programs and stuff are set up so that you go every month and spend time together for three days in a row on the weekend stuff. That's what builds the bonds. I'm still uh, real close with a bunch of people from my graduate program at Penn because we did an executive format where we were there for three days on the weekend and in the hotel and hanging out the whole time and all that, like you're talking about. So you, you need to have those interactions each day, uh, whether it's with family members or once you've made the connection, you can do it online, as you were talking about. Um, and then the third element is really about the physical energy where, boy, if you're missing any sleep and you're chained to a chair for the whole day and you're uh, eating packaged foods over your keyboard and getting crumbs in your keyboard, there's no way you're going to go home and have the energy to be a good spouse or parent. And your next day is going to be a lot lousier, right? So you so you got to turn that around from a physical standpoint as well. So what we did was we, after I, I did that charging lab with a group of authors where we've spent most of our careers going around to bad conference rooms and bad ballrooms and hotels where they uh, give you 10 of the chairs with the thorns in the back and you can barely, you're sitting there thinking all about the pain in your back after 35 minutes and not whatever the lecture is saying or whatever. Um, so after that, after experiencing that, we decided we just need to start from the ground up and bring people to a place where they can spend a day or two days interacting with one another and learning in a way where they're, they're not in a traditional chair at all. So we, we bought all these sit-stand desks and balance boards and wobble stools, um, and bikes that you can pedal while you're working. And we brought all these treadmills in so people could learn if it was if it was easy enough for them to walk at one to two miles an hour and get a little work done at points during the day. And, you know, it was kind of fun because it was just like an actual laboratory where at first we built a conference room in this warehouse uh, with all these whiteboard walls and stuff. And we put a giant conference table in and we positioned all the treadmills so they were facing around the conference table like chairs at a table. And like, oh, this will be great. You can have a meeting and everybody's walking at a slow pace. And we got it all put together and moved everything around. And it turns out it's kind of nauseating and awkward. So if you're all walking towards each other, it feels like you're going to collide and you have to look at people. And it's, but so this place is out in the middle of the woods. When we put them in front of the floor to ceiling windows and you stagger it like a walk in the woods, it works perfect because no one feels like they need to look at each other. You don't feel like you're going to collide. And even on a real rainy day, you can, I mean, I've been working on a treadmill desk here for uh, eight years now. And I've walked the equivalent of Washington, D.C. to Tokyo in that time period. And I've done it at a real slow pace. But I, So I found a new way to work that changed my life like nothing I've ever done. And, you know, it, it's interesting because from a physical energy standpoint, on days when I don't get to use my treadmill desk because I'm on the road or I'm uh, driving or whatever, I mean, it almost feels like I'm hungover because my energy levels are so low versus days when I get to use it. So I would challenge anyone listening to, it doesn't matter if you just go walk when you're on conference calls or 
sit and stand while you're typing and doing emails, but we've got to find ways to infuse more movement into our work routine because that kind of traditional office working in a desk, at a desk in a chair, I, I think it's just horrible for long-term health and we're not as creative and have poor interactions like you were talking about. Yeah, it's clear charge, energy. These are things that that you care a lot about and they're in a lot of your your titles of your books. I'm looking at the titles of your books and I'm seeing the word full and fill uh, bucket uh, quite a bit. I'm just curious, like, what do you do to fill your bucket? Um, you know, for me, the most rewarding thing in a given day is uh, I'll, I'll go pick up my son here in an hour. Uh, and he's at, he's at a brand new school this year in his first weeks. And to just ask him a couple questions and let him talk the whole way home, it takes about 15 minutes to get back, um, is an absolute blast because he'll just go on and on and on. And the kind of energy he has from something that's a new experience is unbelievable. And when I see my daughter after a, a soccer game here in the last week or two, uh, that just kind of energy to talk about it and the physical energy and how good she is with some of the stuff and how quickly she masters stuff. Um, I would say observing uh, kids has been, boy, that's been a gift during the pandemic. I, you know, when this whole thing hit, I, I also have a, a publishing label that I uh, manage with a business partner of mine. And when the pandemic hit, literally everyone I know decided to write a book, except for me. So I, I've just fielding calls and talking to everyone about their books. And that's all I've done for the last few years. Um, I intentionally decided not to write a book for the first time in 20 years, because I realized super early on that no matter how long this darn thing lasts, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity to spend time with my kids and to when they, they have no choice, but to spend time with me. Right. So I'm like, this is never happening again. Um, so I, that's been my uh, coolest focus and most rewarding. And that's what's filled my bucket the most in the last few years. Um, I think the other, the second thing for me uh, lately is uh, helping other authors to get their stories out. There's, there's so many leaders I've worked with in the business space. And um, one guy who was a leadership author just wrote a brilliant uh, fiction book. We, we tried as well. Um, but that's, I actually have more fun working on other authors projects than I do writing my own books. And that's been a, a real rewarding learning for me in recent years. We're going to come back to that, but you struck a chord with me when you were talking about your kids. So I have a five and a half year old and almost seven year old. And Early in the pandemic, I think I had someone on the podcast and and they said it was either that or I think, yeah, it was the podcast. And they said they started recording with their kids what they're grateful for uh, during the first month of the pandemic. And so my wife and I were like, that's kind of a cool idea. So we started recording with our kids. And just yesterday, my wife sent me one of the videos from May 2020. And it's just wild. <laughs> we're like interviewing our kids and asking them questions and then they walk away and there's this scene of me and my wife looking at the camera and we're like help us we're struggling it's, it's like you know you're stuck with the kids and like yeah. you love them but it's it's a lot we're like we're exhausted and uh and and so i'm curious for you uh with parenting and as you as you talk about even you said to me, Hey, I got to be done at a certain time. I think I have to go get my daughter. Um, I struggle with 
the boundaries and how to continue building my career and giving space for my clients and doing the things that I really love and do fill my bucket with, you know, not going to my kids practice or missing a game or um, coaching their sports team, for example, things that I know would fill my bucket, but are in conflict with how I've set up my schedule. How have you set boundaries around your life with your kids? Let's go away from a pandemic setting and go more into like a traditional setting. Like, like how do you set boundaries to make sure that you're present for your kids while still pursuing these passions and, and this vocation that you have as well? Yeah, it's a really good question. One that I've spent, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it because um, when I was a kid, uh, my family was all involved in a small startup business at the time. And they, uh, my dad probably traveled 300 days out of the year and couldn't be around much because of the work that he was doing. And I, so I've probably overcorrected almost if you ask my kids um, in being around a lot and minimizing the travel. Um, that being said, I mean, when I'm here in town, I don't, I don't feel a need to, or want to be the parent that never misses a soccer game or a, a, especially youth baseball game. <laughs> I'll say okay. that quietly. They're long. Um, the, the boys baseball games at this age, um, they go slowly, but so I don't, I don't feel a need to make everything, but I do make most of the stuff. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm conscious of that. And I think that basically being around and being present when I can, I would argue it's more important to um, be fully present when you are with the people that matter most in terms of uh, doing that versus being glued into your phone. Uh, is I think that's really prioritizing who I've, I've learned a lot about prioritizing who you're with. So if like last week, I finally got to spend some time with one of my best friends and business partners who lives in San Francisco. And he was in for some events we were doing and just hanging out with him for three straight days, even though I didn't get time with family and I missed a bunch of games, that was a blast, but I was a hundred percent in that conversation when he was around. So I, I, I've had, I think we've all had to kind of learn to manage that, but um, and also, I mean, you've mentioned this, I, I'm kind of excited about a, a future where we have a little bit more uh, flexibility and control of that because of Zoom and online technologies. I know a lot of people are tired of it, but I couldn't live without it after what we've learned. Yeah, I'm the same way. I want to go to contribution as we start to wind down because you've got to quote, follow contributions rather than accomplishments. And, you know, you've, you've published 10 books, you got this publishing company, you've got this retreat space, uh, you're consulting with a lot of, I'm sure, impressive executives, like plenty of accomplishments. We haven't even talked about Strength Finder and the ridiculousness of that book and how it seems to be a bestseller pretty much all the time. But forget accomplishments for a second. Let's go toward contributions. When you think about your your biggest contribution, what comes to mind for you? You know, the biggest one for me, after all that I've come through with early challenges and everything else is just having a, a family that I'm really, really proud of. Um, and kids who uh, I think I've been there for, my wife and I've been there for, and our, our kids are both, really well adjusted and um, seem to be doing well. You know, like I, I love that my kids have 
good friendships and care about their friends and are really empathetic. And so I think to see some of the outcomes of the time invested there and the care and the love, that's that's the most meaningful for me in my relationships with my wife and my kids and uh, my mom and dad and her parents and everybody else. Um, I think that's that's the biggest thing. Um, the piece that I, from kind of a I don't even, now that I say the word career, it doesn't even sound quite right, but um, from a contribution with some of my work standpoint, uh, I feel most proud of when I, my son started at the uh, public elementary school in our neighborhood here in Arlington. And um, he was, both both of my kids had the experience where they're doing the how full is your bucket thing for the semester. And he's like, that's my dad. And I'm like, no, it's not. He's like, yeah, it is. He drew the pictures. I'm like, I can't draw pictures. He was wrong about that. But I did. So I, I think seeing that used with kids at a real impressionable, impressionable age, I feel really good about the influence that's had on millions of kids over the years. Um, and then the other thing this is kind of a counterintuitive one, but the first project I worked on uh, with a group of real good buddies when I started at Gallup out of college and my grandfather was a program called Strengths Quest that was all about helping college freshmen. It was kind of the curriculum for college freshmen all over the country to figure out what careers they might want to look at, how to build better relationships as freshmen, what to do, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I, I think that was the other thing that I feel pretty good about. Um, that's probably changed the very limited aperture and scope that millions of kids in the country have seen of what they could be and what they could do in their career over the last, I mean, that's been 30 years since we've worked on that. So um, I th those are kind of the more meaningful contributions from a content standpoint beyond the books we've talked about. What do you think your grandfather, Don, if he were still alive and sitting next to you or standing next to you, uh, what do you think he would look at you and say he was most proud of? I think he'd ask what the kids were up to today and what they'd be wanting to do. Um, he was like, he, he was so focused on family and the kids and the, he was kind of a, uh, really got into the uh, child development space and kind of the psychology that when I was a little kid, they were just testing all the horror shocks and ink blots and all that. So he'd be as into the um, development of kids as uh, I've been with ours, I think. So he'd be really interested in that. And then um, I think he'd be kind of blown away by where the that global conversation that he started about uh, focusing on what you do well um, instead of, I mean, that's, that's something we have talked about today that's so foundational where I mean, even after all this background I've had, um, my kids come home and you see a report card and it's just so much easier the way we've been taught and hardwired to jump to the place where they're getting a C instead of the area where they're getting an A, right? But really the thing he taught me is that the place where any kid that age has the, potent the most potential for real growth and success and performance and enjoyment 10, 20, 30 years down the road is the area where they're getting an A at that age, right? So it's, I mean, I, I just can't remind myself of that enough from a leader standpoint or from a parent standpoint. It is amazing. I think sometimes we're quick to reflect on how bad things are today and how much worse they've gotten. And mm -hmm. if you really study that stuff, it's, it's usually pretty false. Um, but one area coming from the world of psychology is that when I was a kid and my parents said for me to go see a therapist, I think I ran away. Like, I think I ran out of the house, told them to go screw themselves. 
And today when I meet 15, 16 year olds, um, I think there is a better focus on like, Hey, I'm going to get better. I'm going to grow. I was in a middle school playing basketball on Wednesday and they're in the gym. There is stuff about growth mindset, right? There is, you know, obviously there's stuff coming out of university of Pennsylvania and positive psychology, uh, your work. I think people are focused on like, how do we leverage our gifts? And it doesn't mean you still don't need to work on your weaknesses, but the focal point was not that way for many, many years in psychology. It was just go see someone when you're sick. And I love the phrase, you don't have to be sick to get better. And so mm-hmm. when I when I think about the strength stuff, it, it really is fundamental and foundational. Um, so I thank you for that. And thanks for continuing to contribute in that way. Um, if people want to find out what you're doing, I know tomrat.org, there's, there's a lot of good stuff on there. We've got the charging lab. Uh, there's no the, so it's just charginglab.com. Uh, the publishing, I wasn't sure where that website is, uh, but if people want to find out more about what you're up to, social media, let's just use this time to promote or anything else you're involved with. There's a nonprofit, uh, something you just want to give a voice to and and give some recognition to. Uh, now's a, a great time to do that. Yeah, I think that the spot where people can go to hear about a lot of the books from authors that we've either published or I spent a lot of time working with is siliconguild.com. And so that's got information on a lot of the titles that we've done and uh, things like that. Um, And then the most recent book, Life's Great Question, has kind of an inventory with it for readers where they can go map out their big life experiences, their strengths, their contributions, all these elements, and kind of put it in a profile that's a more human version of a resume. And that's Contribify, C-O-N-T-R-I-B-I-F-Y. Dot com. And I'd encourage people to check that out because that's, um, I do think we need to start talking about our lives from more of a contribution standpoint instead of a kind of a resume and sterile accomplishment standpoint. Beautiful. I'm on Twitter and so is Tom. So Tom is at, at Tom C. Rath and I'm at Brian Levinson. And then LinkedIn, you're also on. Um, we're connected there. Uh, you can follow both of us on LinkedIn. Uh, and and Tom, this has been a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to listen to any of the other podcast conversations we've had, you can go to strongskills.co slash podcast. Uh, really appreciate this. Looking forward to going out and checking out your space and, and seeing what that's all about and exchanging ideas with you in the future and, and maybe breaking bread at some point as well. So thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, hopefully we talk again real soon. Thanks, Brian. I sure appreciate it. It was a fun conversation. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Even to this day, I ask myself each day, of the things that are on my schedule and calendar, uh, how much of it is actually contributing to a project or an effort or a relationship or a business project that could continue to pay yields and dividends for people even when I'm gone?